Today we're going to be talking about the end of the world. And we live in a world of rising tension. We live in a world where there's wars. Wars currently in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Where there's rising nationalism and protectionism. Where there's mass migration unseen since World War II. Millions and millions of refugees. A world of Islamic extremism and terrorism. A world where Angela, uh, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, said just this week past that for many it feels as though the world is falling apart at the seams. Do you feel that? It begs the question, what does the Bible teach us about the end of the world. Does Jesus in the Gospel of Mark have anything to say to us? Are there signs or things that we should be looking out for? How should we respond? Well, I hope that whets your appetite a little bit for uh, Mark chapter 13. I'm going to read and um, then pray before we get started. So why don't you read with me Mark chapter 13. It says, And he came out of the temple. One of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils and you'll be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs, And false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Well, this morning, I just, I just want to acknowledge my weakness and need for you. Would you help me? 
I'm going to preach this word faithfully to you. May you be glorified. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I want to begin this morning with a few quotes uh, to begin this message. The first comes from uh, famous uh, Bible scholar William Lane. He says, in the Gospel of Mark, there is no passage more problematic. Another quote by uh, the famous preacher Kent Hughes. He says, by far the most difficult passage in the book of Mark and along with its parallels in the other Gospels, one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. If that wasn't enough, James Edwards says the following, one of the most perplexing chapters in the Bible to understand for readers and interpreters alike. Well, church, this morning it's my task to try and explain this passage to you and try and shed some light onto this word and what God's trying to say to us. And so I guess my point is we really need great humility as we examine this word. It is a difficult passage and we're greatly dependent on God's help to really try and understand this word this morning. If many great scholars have long debated uh, the meaning of this word, we need due humility in our interpretation. Yet at the same time, I also wanted to say the doctrine of clarity of Scripture means that if anyone comes to read the Bible asking God for help and being willing to follow it, he's able to read it. He's able to understand it. To people in that situation asking God for help and being willing to follow, the, the Bible's clear. And so with God's help, we're equally able to understand it this morning. Uh, this text or this uh, message I've entitled, uh, for those that keep notes, Keep Watch. And that's the, the title for this morning. I've got two simple points that I'm going to be nailing on. Uh, and they're pretty straightforward. Uh, firstly, simply Mark 13 explained. We're just going to go and try and have a go at understanding what is it all about. And then uh, briefly at the end, I'm going to spend most of my time on that first point. Briefly at the end, uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 13 applied and really thinking hard about uh, what, so what for us? What can we take out of this passage? Well, let's begin with our first point. Uh, point one, Mark 13, explain. Before we get stuck into looking at uh, how I believe we, we need to read this passage, I just want to explain there's been three real uh, main streams of interpret, uh, interpreting Mark chapter 13 that I just want to briefly uh, touch on. And they all kind of hinge around uh, one central passage in the uh, whole chapter, which is uh, verses 24 through to 27. So if you have your Bible there, why don't we just read uh, those verses again, and, um, and then I'll explain what the debate is all about. Um, it says in Mark thirteen twenty four. it says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he'll send out his angels, out the angels, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That passage there uh, is really, at its core, a quote by Jesus of a passage in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 
And uh, the debate about this passage really hinges around what is, what is this passage referring to? And uh, there's a few different ways that people explain it. Uh, first of all, it's the second coming is how people explain it. Uh, the quote is about that, that passage that we read, uh, and, you, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That quote is about, the first perspective says, uh, Jesus coming again, his second coming. And you might be reading that and think, oh yeah, duh, obvious. Like, isn't that the obvious reading of it? Pretty obvious, right? Well, no, not actually. Because if you jump down to verse 30, um, Jesus says the following. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So, clearly, the generation Jesus was speaking to at the time has passed away, and Jesus has not come yet again. So there's some real problems with that interpretation of the passage, that it's about the second coming. The second perspective uh, that people take is that the passage is actually referring to the destruction of the temple that happened in AD 70. So uh, in AD 70, at the command of Caesar of the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman general Titus marched on Jerusalem, absolutely leveled it. And he marched into the temple and absolutely destroyed it. Um, So therefore, this understanding says that the coming of the Son of Man is therefore a reference to God's judgment. It's like the vindication of Jesus in him saying that his body is the new temple through then the destruction of the pre-existent temple. Jesus is vindicated and uh, it's a foretelling about the coming judgment of God on his people. But the problem with this perspective is that the destruction of the temple is not a significant theme in Mark at all. Um, Jesus actually rails not against the people of Israel as a whole, not against the temple or the building, but the leaders of Israel. That's who he's bothered about. That's who recently he's been having problems with. The third perspective that a lot of people say, and probably the most common, is they go, well then, problems with both of those, so we'll take a little bit from column A, and we'll take a little bit from column B. It's kind of a mixture of both of those things. Um, That's probably the most common approach. Well, this morning I'm going to explain an uh, approach taken from a well-known Bible scholar uh, from Sydney Moore College, and that's uh, Peter Bolt. And I'm going to be relying heavily on what uh, he says about this passage. And what I want you to see, and you might not see it at first, I hope that God would help us to see it, uh, is that this passage is actually predominantly about the cross. Okay, That this passage really is a passage that's predominantly about the cross. Where do we get that? Well, the first place we need to go to really understand this passage, I believe, is context. Really understanding what's been happening in Mark up until this point. Now, if you've been following with us in the series, you remember that Mark starts off, you know, this is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a good news about Jesus the King that's coming. And Mark chapter 1 through to chapter 8 has been all about asking the questions, really thinking about the question of who is this man? 
And that's the, the theme that comes up and up again. We see it in chapter 4, where Jesus, remember, he's on the boat, and then he speaks to the, the waves and the wind and calms it with his, with his voice. And then the disciples are like uh, alarmed and afraid, and they, think, and they ask the question, they ask, who is this then that the, the waves and the wind obey him? That's the question. And it reaches its peak right at the end of chapter 8, in chapter 8, verses 27, where Jesus asks his disciples that question exactly. He says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say this, and some say that, some say John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet. Um, And Jesus asks a follow-up question. He says, but who do you say that I am? And the disciples say, well, Peter says, you're the Christ. That's who we believe you are. You're God's chosen king. And Jesus goes on to then explain his mission, why he's come. He goes on to explain that he's going up to Jerusalem and he's going to be delivered into the hands of Gentiles, that he's going to be killed, but three days later he's going to rise. And following that explanation, Mark's gospel shifts completely. And it shifts now not to look at the question of who is this man, but what has he come to do? And the shift focuses specifically onto the cross. And we see the build-up to the cross time and time again. In chapter 9, he predicts his death as a, a, a following time. In chapter 10, 32, he begins his, his walk towards Jerusalem specifically. A few verses later, in 10, 45, he, he tells his disciples, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's going up to Jerusalem with the sole purpose, and that is to give his life. The cross is increasingly in view. In chapter 11, some weeks ago, we looked at he enters into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and straight away, he's not greeted with thanks or anything like that. Uh, Chapter 11, verses 18, straight away, the Pharisees are plotting already to kill him. The cross is building more and more. And then at the end of chapter 11, we start this showdown where Jesus and the Pharisees are colliding again and again and again. And, And we can feel the tension rising and rising as they're plotting his downfall. Chapter 12, we have that, that beautiful uh, parable of the tenants um, who reject the uh, servants that come to uh, correct them and eventually kill the son. Jesus explaining in a tight sense about his coming death and the cross. 1238, and it ends with this warning about the scribes who, who take advantage of others, including that lady who we've seen this morning again, that poor widow who was taken advantage of, who gave away all her money and not not taken care of by the scribes and Pharisees. And then straight away after our chapter, um, chapter 13, which we're looking at today, we jump straight back into, again, looking at the coming cross and Jesus' death. We see 14.1, the plot begins to, to kill Jesus afresh, and he's anointed at Bethany for his burial. Then he's betrayed by Judas. It's the last summer, Gethsemane, his arrest, and then he's at the cross. So our passage this morning, in context, is at the climax of Mark's build-up to the cross. Jesus has come into Jerusalem and, and is ready to face the cross. You see, most people see this passage as not a climax of the cross, but a tangent away from the cross. It's like Jesus kind of gets off script a little bit and starts talking about some other things before he comes back to the cross. But I put to us this morning that we need to read this passage through the lens of the coming cross. Let's read those first two verses of chapter 13 just to paint our scene afresh again. It says in uh, chapter 13 verses 1 and 2, it says, And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, 
Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus has come into Jerusalem without the expected welcome. Jesus has been claiming to be the God's only chosen king. And instead of a welcome, what he's had is clash after clash after clash with the authorities. And there's rising tension. And people are, people are hearing rumors about plots to kill Jesus. In fact, Jesus has been saying multiple times, I will be killed. And this disciple in this moment is trying to reassure Jesus. What he's saying, in effect, is... Surely God is with you in your call to be the Messiah and overthrow the Romans. What he's saying is, look, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. Look how beautiful they are. Can't you see how God is blessing his people? And Jesus' response is surprising. What Jesus says to this disciple is that just like everything else in creation, This building isn't going to last. Don't put your confidence in God's goodness based on these beautiful buildings. Disciples are intrigued. What? This building is going to be destroyed? The temple? What? How? When? By whom? How will we know when it's going to happen? And they look for an opportunity to ask him again. And they get one as he comes to the Mount of Olives. It says, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus, give us some signs. When's this going to happen? When's it going to take place? How do we know when we're in those end times? And Jesus begins his response. The first part of Jesus' response, really, he has one big main point that he keeps driving again and again. And his point is this to his disciples. Looking for signs will lead you astray. That's his point. Looking for signs is going to be of no help to you whatsoever. It's going to lead you astray. And Jesus recounts many, many false signs. Uh, chapter, chapter 13, verse 7, we have wars and conflicts. He says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Earthquakes and famines also. He goes on to say, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Earthquakes and famines. More. Persecution. In verses 9, all the way through to 13, he talks about persecution and betrayal. You hear this uh, word that's used, delivered over to. Um, how, how our fathers are delivered over to by their children and children by their fathers. And there's this word that really paints a picture of betrayal, of division and rejection. Um, again, we see false signs in 
verses 6 and 21 and 22 are false Christs. Jesus says this, he says, Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Again, verse 21 and 22, he says, And if someone says, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Many false signs. Well, what's the focus of all these false signs? What are they all about? Well, the answer is quite simple. To lead astray the elect, uh, uh, the elect astray. Jesus says three times, he says the following, verse 5, he says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 6, they will come and they will lead many astray. Again, verse 22, will perform signs and wonders to lead astray. The focus of the signs is leading people astray. To lead astray the elect. What's the problem with sign seeking? What's the problem with looking for signs? Jesus says you're in danger of being led astray. If you're looking for signs, you're in danger of people leading you astray because people are coming who will have any number of false signs and you'll be easily tricked. More, it sets you up to stumble by feeding unbelief. You see, people who look for signs put their trust and hope in them rather than in God. They say, I've seen X happen and Y happen and therefore Z's going to happen next week. I've seen the stock market go up, housing prices are the same, therefore I don't need to worry about finances, I'm set, I'm all good. X and Y means Z. It sets you up to stumble by feeding unbelief because you don't need to trust God, you can just trust in your signs. We saw this earlier on in chapter 8. It says that the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. You see, looking for signs of the end puts you on the side of the unbelieving Pharisees. In answer to the disciples' question about the end times, Jesus says, don't focus on the signs. Instead, focus on your faithfulness. We see it three times in this passage. In fact, Jesus, three times, he uses exactly the same word. It's translated variously in your Bible, but it's the same word. Uh, Verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. See. Verse 9, it comes again, be on your guard. Verse 22, again, false prophets will come to lead astray and perform wonders and signs to lead astray the elect if possible, but be on your guard. Three times, be on your guard. Keep watch of yourself. Take care you are not led astray or deceived. You see, according to Jesus, your focus when it comes to the end times shouldn't be outward looking for signs, but inward. It shouldn't be outward wondering where are the signs that will tell me when it's going to happen, but inward to consider your own faithfulness. Rather than looking for signs of the end times, disciples are to focus on their own personal faithfulness. However, Jesus does give them one sign that they're to look out for. One sign that the end is 
very near. And we see that in verse 14, if you read with me. Verse 14, he says this, But, but, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This is one of the most difficult uh, verses in this whole uh, passage and section. It's one of the most controversial and difficult elements. It's actually a quote from Daniel 12 where Daniel says uh, he can't understand the image because it's, it's, he has this vision of this image of this abomination of desolation. He can't understand it because it's not his time. And what Jesus is saying is let the reader of Daniel understand. What Daniel couldn't understand, let the reader understand. I want you to understand what Daniel could not. This is the end time. This is the time. This is the sign of the time and I want you to understand. And this phrase really contains two words. The idea of blasphemy and sacrilege on the one hand, mixed with devastation and destruction on the other hand. You know, the difficulty of um, all kind of interpretations that people kind of try to have with this passage is that they really end up taking minor events uh, in history at this point. So they'll look at the example of when the Emperor Caligula put up an idol or a picture of an idol inside the temple in Jerusalem. But I want to put to us this morning or to consider, in light of the context and what we've been talking about, what greater destroying blasphemy, what greater sacrilege of destruction is there than the cross? The abomination that leads to desolation, the sacrilege of destruction in context is best understood as the cross. That God the Son would come, the Son of God Himself, living the perfect life in our place. The light of the world entered into darkness. That He would live His perfect life. That He would be betrayed by His closest friends. That He would be mocked, abused, tortured, hanging on the cross and dying in our place. Notice the second part of that verse 14 Uh, what it says, it says, when you see the abomination of desolation, where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You know, Mark chapter 16, verse 8, ends with the disciples stumbling across the tomb that is now empty. And what do they do in response? They flee. And that, friends, is where the gospel ends. But if that wasn't enough evidence, read with me verse 19 again. Read verse, verse 19. It says, for in those days there will be such tribulation. Read the word suffering. There will be such suffering as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be. In understanding that verse, you're really left with two options. You can either say that the cross is the greatest example of suffering in all of history, or there's some event in the past or in the future where there'll be greater suffering still. Now friends, I put to you that that. Jesus is talking about in this passage about the cross. The greatest tribulation, the greatest suffering the world will ever see has happened at the cross. When the Father pours his wrath for all of our sins upon the Son. According to Mark, then, the cross is 
the one reliable sign that the end times have arrived. And as if this wasn't evidence enough that Jesus is talking about events surrounding the cross, he's going to point us even further towards this again in the following verses. Read with me verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Where do we see kind of cosmic events like this unfolding? Listen to the words of Mark chapter 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, Mark writes, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read verse 25. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Mark chapter 15, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And now we arrive at the central passage in the discussion, the coming of the Son of Man. And he writes, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Well, to understand uh, what this verse means, the central passage of the discussion, we really need to turn to read the Daniel chapter 7 uh, passage to understand it in context. Um, Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 says the following. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In church, this is a vision kind of of like a heavenly throne room. And we've got the Ancient of Days, Yahweh, seated on his throne. And with the clouds comes the Son of Man, and he's given his kingdom. And he takes his place, seated at the right hand of his Father. It's not actually a vision of return. It's not actually a vision of Christ's second coming. It's actually a heavenly vision of ascension. It's Christ receiving his kingdom. And this is exactly what Jesus is referring to when he quotes this passage once more, again, at the end of his trial in Mark chapter 14, verse 62. He says, And you will, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. You will see, he says. You guys are going to see this. He's not referring to his second coming. They wouldn't see that. He's referring to his ascension into glory. He's referring to his resurrection and his ascension. Well, what happens next after his resurrection? Read with me uh, verse 27. And then he will send out the angels, the word literally messengers, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Then he will send out his messengers and gather his elect. It's the book of Acts. It's what comes next. Well, how are the disciples to respond? They're to stay awake. They're to keep watch. For they don't know when the Son of Man will ascend and receive his kingdom. Well, in summary, Mark chapter 13, is Jesus warning the disciples against a kind of sign-watching mentality. 
He's encouraging them to watch their own faithfulness instead. He encourages them that there is one, only one sign that is worth watching for, and that is his impending death on the cross, the only true sign that shows us the last days have arrived. Well, that's point one. Uh, Mark chapter 13 explained. Uh, with the remaining time, briefly, I want to just deal with point two, and that's Mark chapter 13 applied. And to just think about the question of, well, so what? You know, how do we apply this passage? How do we apply it? Well, there's three different areas I believe this passage really helps us and speaks to us. And the first of those is that it really helps us grow in appreciation for the cross. Uh, read with me again that, that key verse, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, when you see that sacrilege, that blasphemy, standing where he ought not be, we so so quickly forget the horror of the cross, don't we? We so quickly forget the horrific blasphemy that the cross is, the sacrilege that it was, the abomination that took place for us, the destruction that the Son of Man endured, that He was horribly blasphemed for us. You know... It puts all of our injustices and our sufferings in perspective, doesn't it? To examine the cross. Read with me again verse 19. For in those days, or on that day, there will be such suffering as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and will never be again. To think that suffering that he endured for us. Suffering that the world has never seen and will never see again. The writhing agony of the Son of God on that cross for us. But here's where it gets even more amazing. Hebrews 12, 2. But Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It wasn't just that he endured that suffering and that he endured it for you and me. It's that he looked at it and it was his joy to do it. Do you mind if I ask you this morning how appreciative of the cross have you been this week? You know, this passage reminds us of incredible gift the cross is. Maybe if you've come here this morning and like so often for me, you've felt your heart has not been stirred by the cross. Maybe this is a way that you could apply this text this morning. 
that you could meditate on verses like verse 14 and 19 and, and grow in your appreciation of the cross and all the Christ has done for you. But secondly, not just to grow in appreciation for the cross, but it helps us to trust God in uncertain times. You know, we live in a world of constant change and uncertainty, global change, new governments, wars, refugees, uh, natural disasters, national change, change in social values. I mean, who doesn't see that? Change in religious beliefs, government, natural disasters, a personal change. Maybe it's more personal for you. Change in a health situation, change in the nature of a relationship. Maybe your marriage status has changed. Maybe you've welcomed a, a child into your family and you're, you're feeling that change. Maybe you've finished school uh, for the first time and you're facing the future and it's uncertain. Maybe you're retired and you're facing the end. Well, this passage helps us to trust God in uncertain times. Three times Jesus reassures us. Verse 7, hear what he says. Do not be alarmed. This must take place. This is necessary, Jesus says. Verse 8, he says again, These are but the beginning of birth pains. These are just birth pains. They're not the main event. And they're just the beginning of birth pains, if you see these things. Verse 11, in context of talking about persecution and division and betrayal, he says, Do not be anxious. Persecution will come, but don't be afraid. You see, all global events are a necessary part of the sovereign plan of God. You don't need to be afraid. More than that, verse 26, but you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, this passage reminds us the Lord Jesus is enthroned in glory at the right hand of the Father and governing the world as we see it. He has received all power and authority and he'll come again. But finally, thirdly, it reminds us to be prepared. You know, what's Jesus' main encouragement to his disciples? Well, we, we see it in verse 33. He says, Be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to all of you, stay awake. Stay awake. Keep watch. You don't know when I'm coming to take my kingdom. You know, despite Jesus' repeated warnings to watch repeatedly as the story unfolds, the disciples would fail. They'd fall asleep. And be led astray. The question you see is not have I seen the signs, but am I ready for the master? Church, do you mind if I kind of pressure you a little bit? Jesus is speaking here about his 
coming death, resurrection, and ascension. But later he would go on to teach his disciples that he would come back again. Here's where I want to pressure you. Are you ready? Are you awake? Does your life say that you're busy watching for him to come in the way in which you use your time or your money or your energy? Or does it say that you're fast asleep? If Jesus would return today, would you be ready? Or would you feel embarrassed and inconvenienced? Inconvenienced that he's interrupting your plans for your kids or plans for a relationship or plans for paying off the mortgage or plans for holidays? Or would you feel relieved that the one who you've been longing for has finally arrived? Or would you be embarrassed that he's caught you unprepared with other priorities? You know, if, if that's you sitting here this morning, I, I don't want you to despair. You know, if, if that's you here this morning and you're realizing, yeah, I've been asleep, it's Jesus calling you to wake up. And I just want to encourage you, before you leave here this morning, take some time. Take some time and just pray a simple prayer. Lord, help me to keep watch. Lord, help me, Lord, to reorder my priorities. Lord, reveal to me any areas where I might have fallen asleep. And I believe the Lord will be faithful to answer that prayer. Well, in closing, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus warns his disciples against a sign watching mentality. Instead, they're to keep watch on their own faithfulness. He shows them that there's only one sign that points to the last days, and that's his impending death on the cross. May we grow in appreciation of the cross. May we trust God in uncertain times. May we be prepared for the master's return. Let me close in prayer. Lord, we we want to thank you so much this morning for this word. It's a word that for all of us, we, we just so desperately need to hear. Lord, surprisingly, in a busy city, it's so easy to fall asleep. It's so easy to be tired and to rest when you command us to stay awake. And you warn us in love that you're coming back soon, you're coming any day, that you're risen in power and authority and soon you will usher in your kingdom once and for all, Lord. And we long for that day. Lord, I just pray for anyone here this morning who's in hearing this word, come to realize afresh they've been sleeping. They're not ready. Lord, would you extend your amazing grace to them. Would you help them to see the beauty of the cross, all you suffered for them, Lord, that you're calling them to be holy like you are, like you're preparing a house and a place and a room for them that once everything that they enjoy will be, will, will, will be brought to completion in an eternity with you. Help us to trust you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.